0: A cell in the body of God, is there a connection between spiritual transcendence and globalist control? This is an essay by Josh Middledorf in two parts. Charles Eisenstein calls it the age of separation. For several thousand years of recorded history, human institutions and human behaviors, even human perceptions have been organized around the idea that we are separate individuals the dominance of Western over Eastern and Indigenous cultures, Enlightenment science, and capitalism especially, have intensified the dominance of this Weltanschauung so that, to most of us, the idea that I am a separate individual human seems self-evident. Many people who have had experiences of samadhi or kundalini or near-death out-of-body or psychedelic revelations report that For a short time, it becomes tangibly apparent to them that separation is an illusion. I'm drawn to reading these accounts, but I've never had an experience of this sort myself. This essay is an experiment in reaching beyond my individual self via the mental faculty alone. Is it obvious that a change in so fundamental a paradigm from I am a separate individual to a non-dual perspective changes everything about psychology, about morality, politics, biology, physical cosmology. We live in an age when central government is becoming rapidly more controlling. Beliefs, behaviors are homogenizing worldwide, and there's a visible movement for creating a global order. Is this then humanity's destiny for all of our species to become hypersocial like an ant colony? Section one, the greatest good for the greatest number. In my freshman year of college, I took a survey course with readings from all the great philosophers. I scratched my head and wondered where Plato got his implausible ontology. I read St. Augustine as mired in the absurd doctrine of original sin. I read Kant as abstraction piled on abstraction, dancing around the essence. When we got to John Stuart Mill, I felt like I was coming home. Yes, this is clearly the right answer. For Mill and for my freshman self, society is a collection of autonomous individuals. Happiness of the individual is the ultimate good. What constitutes happiness? In Mill's own words, pleasure and freedom from pain are the only things desirable as ends, end quote. Societies are formed by a social contract. Individuals voluntarily exchange some of their autonomy for a rule-based order in the context of which they can thrive as individuals better than they could on their own. Essential to this system of thought is that there is no God-given morality, no platonic good, no religion within the limits of reason alone. Pleasure is an individual thing, and the only rational way to define collective good is as an aggregation of individual pleasure. Hence, the greatest good for the greatest number was Jeremy Bentham's mantra, adopted by John Stuart Mill and articulated as a coherent political philosophy. I thought at the time that this philosophy was rationality itself and that I had come upon it by my own individual powers of reasoning. Much later did I start to realize that I had acquired the utilitarian dogma by osmosis from the assumptions implicit in the pronouncements of grown ups from whom I had learned. Today I believe that psychology is transpersonal, that telepathy is happening all the time, that the thoughts in my mind do not necessarily come sui generis from my brain the psychological ills that our culture treats as chemical imbalances in the brain are more usefully seen as sociological dysfunction, that that happiness itself is a collective attribute of a family or community, maybe of Gaia. Section two, major transitions in evolution. We think of a biological individual as an objective category but the notion of an individual is an evolutionary variable. An individual paramecium engages in a struggle for existence like any other being. Lacromaria is a hunter that senses its prey, extends a neck out to retrieve it, explores vulnerable angles and strategizes about how to ingest, all without a brain or a nervous system. Lacromaria is a single cell. But a cell of comparable size and complexity may be part of your body, given over to serving the welfare of a larger unit. These cells are specialized to provide structure, bone cells, or to transduce signals, nerve cells, or to filter toxins, liver cells. Each may be as good at what it does as lacrimaria is at hunting bacteria, but. They have pooled their impressive and diverse talents in service to a collective entity, an individual operating at a higher level of organization. Every second, four million of your cells die and are replaced by others. Most of these are blood cells. Most of the rest are lining of the stomach and intestine. But there is substantial turnover in the skin and bones as well. You don't think anything of it, You're the same person because your identity depends on the relationship among many cells and not on the cells themselves. John Maynard Smith distilled and formalized the mathematical principles of evolutionary theory in the mid-20th century. His book on major transitions in evolution describes the history of life on Earth as the hierarchical assembly of functionalist systems at ever higher levels of integration. Life began with molecules that could reproduce themselves, but this was quickly subsumed by hypercycles, different molecules which mutually catalyzed the formation of new copies of one another. The hypercycles collected into cells, and cells aggregated as bacterial films working their chemistry together. Then, only after three billion years, the cells began to pool their destinies in multicellular animals and plants. David Sloan Wilson theorized about levels of selection in evolution. Individuals are allied in communities that become powerful reproductive units in their own right, and communities are parts of ecosystems that are, in their own way, greater than the sum of their parts Our living world is only partway through each of these transitions so that evolution takes place on many levels at once. Selfish genes, selfish individuals, selfish communities arrayed in selfish ecosystems that compete for space and resources with other entire ecosystems. Parenthetically, I think of the origin of life on Earth as a major scientific mystery, and Maynard Smith's premise is only the most conservative hypothesis. We have yet to imagine a plausible mechanism, and in fact, it seems from our lab work and some simple computation that the simplest self-reproducing molecule is far too complex to have arisen by chance, even with the most optimistic assumptions. End of aside. Nevertheless, the idea that life has become more complex and integrated at ever higher levels seems sound to me. sociality is the word biologists use to describe tightly evolved communities where every individual has a role to play, and the individual's life purpose, her very existence, becomes subrogated to the hive. Douglas Hofstadter describes an anthill as a living conscious being Each individual ant may be playing a role by rote, acting in a way that is derivable from simple rules. She may have no more consciousness than a nerve cell in the human brain, but collectively, the anthill acts with intelligence and direction. In an imagined dialogue between an anteater and Achilles, Achilles expresses amazement that the ants were part of a higher-level pattern without being conscious of it. Typical of Hofstadter's consummate cleverness, at this point in the dialogue, Achilles is an illustration of the same phenomenon. Anteater discusses how individual ants are communistic, but Aunt Hillary herself is a rich libertarian. Aunt Hillary has goals and strategies for reaching those goals, the hallmarks of a conscious agent. Section 3, Living Ecosystems. Up until a few years ago, biologists thought that a tree farm was the same as a forest. A concept of a tree was an individual, independent plant that grows tall in order to hog more of the sunlight, food for growth, denying access to the plants underneath for selfish ends. Thanks to the work of Suzanne Simard, we know now that the forest is an ecosystem and trees nourish one another through networks of fungal filaments, mycelia. Trees grow tall, not because of a runaway competition to grab more sunlight, but because the highest leaves can capture mists that float high above the forest and turn the humidity into precipitation that benefits all. A tree farm Is a pathological perversion of a forest in which trees really do grow straight up to compete for sunlight. But the natural destiny of a tree, its highest calling, is to participate in a forest ecosystem. Perhaps it makes sense to think of a forest ecosystem as an individual on a higher level of organization, as yet not completely differentiated. The many species that make up a forest ecosystem have pooled their resources and talents, and have linked their destinies, but only partially. It may be that the ecosystem is an individual in the process of differentiation that is not yet evolutionarily complete. I've written about natural selection that operates at the ecosystem level, citing evidence that demographic homeostasis is a collective good an essential component of fitness in the context of evolutionary competition, ecosystem versus ecosystem. In other words, ecosystems must be robust in the face of varying environments. And the ecosystem can't afford for any one species to indulge in runaway growth that throws the system into imbalance. We see examples of natural birth control, territoriality, and aging as evolutionary programs that seem to make no sense in the context of selfish gene theory. We can interpret all these altruistic phenomena as taxes that the individual pays in order to benefit from a stable ecosystem. Biophilia is a concept introduced by E.O. Wilson, a sense of kinship that we feel across species lines We relate to dogs as family members. Craig Foster bonded with an octopus with daily visits over a period of a year, and the octopus bonded with Craig. This video documents a manifest friendship between a dog and an elephant. Robert Frost wrote a poem about recognizing selfhood in a mite. None of these cross-species relationships can be explained in the context of evolutionary theory that is confined to fitness of individuals. They speak of relationships that transcend evolutionary competition between individuals and even between species. They speak of ecosystems as integrated biological entities. And this is Robert Frost's poem titled A Considerable Speck a speck that would have been beneath my sight on any but a paper sheet so white, set off across what I had written there. I had idly poised my pen in air to stop it with a period of ink, when something strange about it made me think, this was no dust speck by my breathing blown, but unmistakably a living mite with inclinations it could call its own. It paused as with suspicion of my pen, and then came racing wildly on again to where my manuscript was not yet dry, then paused again, and either drank or smelt with loathing, for again it turned to fly. Plainly with an intelligence I dealt. It seemed too tiny to have room for feet, yet must have had a set of them complete to express how much it didn't want to die. It ran with terror and with cunning crept, It faltered. I could see it hesitate, then, in the middle of the open sheet, cower down in desperation to accept whatever I accorded it of fate. I have none of the tenderer-than-thou, collectivist, regimenting love with which the modern world is being swept, but this poor microscopic item now, since it was nothing I knew evil of, I let it lie there till I hope it slept. I have a mind myself and recognize mind when I meet with it in any guise. No one can know how glad I am to find on any sheet the least display of mind. End of Robert Frost's poem. Section 4. Mystical Union. Like William James, I have never had a direct experience of cosmic unity, but I wish to learn from people who try to describe such experiences. One report that I can relate to is the confidence people acquire that the universe is caring for them. During a decade of daily meditation practice, I felt this feeling ripen without my consciously seeking it. I now feel that the unwelcome experiences that come my way have something to teach me, so I no longer wish it would have been otherwise or that this thing should never have happened. I recovered slowly, miraculously, after my bicycle was struck by a speeding car in 2021, leading to eight surgeries and many months of rehab. Here's a passage from Cosmic Consciousness by R. M. Buck, as quoted in Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. I saw that all men are immortal, the cosmic order is such that, without any peradventure, all things work together for the good of each and all, that the foundation principle of the world, of all the worlds, is what we call love, and that the happiness of each and all is, in the long run, absolutely certain. End of quote. A common theme, as people report mystical experiences, is that a feeling of well-being and immersion and love is associated with this experience of oneness. Another quote from Varieties of Religious Experience. Something in myself made me feel myself a part of something bigger than I, that I was controlling. I felt myself one with the grass, the trees, birds, insects, everything in nature, I exulted in the mere fact of existence, of being a part of it all, the drizzling rain, the shadows of the clouds, the tree trunks, and so on. This is Edwin Starbuck, as quoted by William James. I believe, again after James, that such experiences are actually quite common More of my acquaintances than I can count have privately confided their own experiences to me. What is rare is the ability to describe the experience in terms that convey anything at all of their magical quality. One of the best I know comes from Aldous Huxley's book The Doors of Perception, quote, Fortuitous and provisional, the little nosegay broke all the rules of traditional good taste At breakfast that morning, I had been struck by the lively dissonance of its colors. But that was no longer the point. I was not looking now at an unusual flower arrangement. I was seeing what Adam had seen on the morning of his creation, the miracle, moment by moment, of naked existence. There seems to be plenty of it, was all I would answer when the investigator asked me to say what I felt about time plenty of it, but exactly how much was entirely irrelevant. I could, of course, have looked at my watch, but my watch, I knew, was in another universe. My actual experience had been, was still, of an indefinite duration, or alternatively, of a perpetual present made up of one continually changing apocalypse. The legs, for example, of the chair How miraculous their tubularity, how supernatural their polished smoothness. I spent several minutes, or was it several centuries, not merely gazing at those bamboo legs, but actually being them, or rather being myself in them, or, to be still more accurate, for I was not involved in this case, nor in a certain sense were they, being my not-self in the not-self, which was the chair, end quote. In congregational religions, obedience is enforced and the individual will is subjugated to a higher power that is represented by an agent here on earth, a pope or an imam or a rabbi, a prophet or religious authority who tells us how we must behave From childhood, my instinct was to be suspicious of people who say that they speak for God. And I fashioned myself an atheist beginning well before puberty. But during a lifetime, I have outgrown resentment of organized religion. And I can appreciate that rebellion against authority is only a first step toward freedom. When I feel most free, I am not asserting a stalwart independence, but heeding a call to action that whether it originates within or without me, feels deeply authentic. Here's my poem on the subject. With discipline you've stayed temptation's pull, you've worked to do the right and noble thing. You realize one day your life's half full, uneasiness, but too remote to sting. Good karma, you had reason to expect, would bring reward some day for all your pains. But lately, you're beginning to suspect there is no guarantee that justice reigns. Refusing others' rules, shunning convention, you freed yourself only to rebuild walls. Self-discipline had not been your intention. Instinctual being from the distance calls. Outside your window float the singing birds. When freedom comes at last, you have no words end of poem. Lao Tzu described a way of being that is effortlessly wise. The sage refines his instincts so that they encompass all his worldly knowledge and intellectual faculties and integrates telepathic connection to a larger source. Then action comes without a decision, without an act of will. Oneness with Tao supports an intuitive mode of being that does not violate but transcends free will. Section five, childhood's end. Can human communities be eusocial? Are we evolving on a path toward eusociality? It was formerly theorized that eusociality requires that all individuals in the hive have identical genes worker bees had to have been born of the same queen inseminated by the same drone. But eusocial insect populations are not always genetically identical or even genetically close. In Arthur C. Clarke's novel, Childhood's End, humanity reaches an inflection point when those who are ready make the transition to a state of entrainment. They no longer have wills of their own, but act in concert, continually, and always toward a common end. In Clark's version of the story, this transition is effected via telepathic powers. Not all humans, and certainly not all intelligent beings, have psychic powers. But a generation of humans is born in which occult powers of the mind are nascent. The children become like zombies, staring vacantly, devoid of personality, lacking all emotion. Though they appear individually to be automatons, these children have enormous psychic powers in the aggregate. They play with altering the Earth's spin and the orbit of the moon, thinning the atmosphere and remaking the planet into a new habitat. This breakaway, we might call it a singularity, has been managed by overlords from an extraterrestrial advanced civilization Who are vastly more intelligent than humans but who lack psychic powers entirely the overlords are not working on their own behalf but in service to a higher intelligence which they understand only as a shadow the essential mystery of the novel is resolved for the reader in a passage where the overlords explain their role to humanity in the centuries before our coming your scientists uncovered the secrets of the physical world and led you from the energy of steam to the energy of the atom. You had put superstitions behind you. Science was the only real religion of mankind. It was the gift of the Western minority to the remainder of mankind, and it had destroyed all other faiths. Those that still existed when we came were already dying. Science, it was felt, could explain everything. There were no forces which did not come within its scope, no events for which it could not ultimately account. The origin of the universe might be forever unknown, but all that had happened after that obeyed the laws of physics. And yet, your mystics, though they were lost in their own delusions, had seen part of the truth. There are powers of the mind and powers beyond the mind, which, your science could never have brought within its framework without shattering it entirely. All down the ages there have been countless reports of strange phenomena, poltergeists and telepathy, precognition, which you had named but never explained. At first science ignored them, even denied their existence, despite the testimony of five thousand years. But they exist, and If it is to be complete, any theory of the universe must account for them. During the first half of the twentieth century, a few of your scientists began to investigate these matters. They did not know it, but they were tampering with the lock on Pandora's box. The forces they might have unleashed transcended any perils that the atom could have brought, for the physicists could only have ruined the earth, the paraphysicists, could have spread havoc to the stars. That could not be allowed. I cannot explain the full nature of the threat you represented. It would not have been a threat to us, and therefore we do not comprehend it. Let us say that you might have become a telepathic cancer, a malignant mentality, which in its inevitable dissolution would have poisoned other and greater minds. And so we came. We were sent to Earth, we interrupted your development on every cultural level, but in particular, we checked all serious work on paranormal phenomena. I am well aware of the fact that we have also inhibited by the contrast between our civilizations all other forms of creative achievement as well. But that was a secondary effect, and it is of no importance. End of quote from Arthur C. Clarke. The novel ends as it must with the first stages of this transition from individual to superorganism. Our limited human experience cannot conceive the mental universe of a superorganism or relate to its processes or its concerns. Any more than a paramecium can appreciate a Beethoven symphony. Clark left off wisely because he knew that the superorganism's superconsciousness can only be a direction in which our human minds might stretch. Clark took his inspiration from the world of ants, who don't seem to us to have much of a life as individuals, but perhaps that's because they are ants. I like to imagine that the human becoming a cell in the body of God need not leave behind any of her humanity. The transition can be realized without sacrificing any of the richness of human experience. And in fact, participation in this larger purpose is the ultimate fulfillment of our individual lives. An ant has only its ant self to offer the hive. But we have the fullness of our humanity, which we may offer in service. In Clark's world... Telepathy is an add-on, an extra appendage that is not necessary for intelligent life. My guess is that this connection to one mind is actually what defines life itself, that telepathy is present in animals and plants. You must read Monica Galliano. Individuality and this sense of separation that we take as the human condition are really cultural artifacts of a human civilization that has strayed so far from nature that we have forgotten our essence. Section 6, Globalization and the Great Reset. In the present age, we are invited into a transhumanist future in which our lives are blissfully regularized, homogenized, regulated, surveilled and centrally controlled for the smooth function of a global society that supports and nourishes all. But this is not a step into an open-ended collective future. It is a retreat into feudalism. Rather than integrating the diverse creative powers of 8 billion humans, the globalist agenda reduces glorious individuals to their least common denominator, and confines them in service to the very limited vision of a few individuals of impoverished imagination. Much as they try to convince us that we're doing this for the collective good, we can see that it is deception originating with megalomaniacs and pervade to us through a well-developed science of managing public perceptions. It is the endpoint of Edward Bernays' vision as articulated in the 1920s. Here's how Alison McDowell describes this brave new world. Quote, based on what I'm seeing in the Web3 space, I'm picturing a new NGO culture emerging in which decentralized autonomous organizations, or DAOs, with a pretense of tokenized cooperative governance manage legions of platform laborers all tied to ledgers and wearable tech. Algorithms weigh individual needs against those of the collective and mete out payments for digital public goods production. Officials, whether they understand it or not, are setting citizens up to become precarious impact commodities for high-frequency option trading. One hand washes the other as the masses are made to power the matrix and build out digital empire, everyone plays their assigned role in the spectacle advancing the plot without wrapping their minds around the game that they're in or comprehending what the stakes are." Close quote. Section seven, tentative resolutions. You don't have to become a slave or an automaton in order to serve a larger entity than yourself. Individual bees and ants are among the most sophisticated of insects. Ants have sensitive chemical senses and respond to hundreds of pheromones. Honeybees have a shared dance language that tells them where to look for flowers. And they have eyes sensitive to polarized sunlight that can be used for navigation in all weather. The point is that social insects don't sacrifice any of the richness of their individual lives, even though their lives are organized around service to a community. Likewise, the individual cells in our bodies have lives as rich as the lacrimaria. Maybe blood cells are an exception. They are highly specialized to carry O2 and CO2. They do little else. But I like to think that biology is organized hierarchically and evolution creates ever new and higher levels of cooperation in such a way that experience of individuals at lower levels is enhanced at each stage of the process. Of course, I cannot know. After years of daily yoga and meditation practice, I have yet to have an experience of oneness. But I'll venture a guess that you can't have a healthy body without healthy cells. Likewise, there has not, to my knowledge, been a thriving national community based on individual repression where the individuals have no freedom but a central authority assures that the collective becomes prosperous with artistic and scientific advances, global influence. My intuition is that our lives as individual humans are indeed steps toward a destiny in which we dissolve in service to a larger consciousness. My intuition is that Mr. Global is a perversion of our collective instincts for his own selfish ends, rather than a step on the path in our collective evolution. But we cannot yet see the glory for which we are destined. Its gradual unveiling is the drama which invests our lives with richness and purpose. End of part two.